1: Welcome back. As we began reporting last week, the government issued guidelines for triage and rationing critical care in the event that our ICUs are overrun and there's not enough for all patients who need it. According to the leaked document, the key consideration would be which patients would be most likely to survive a year after treatment, and that refers to surviving their current emergency and not any pre-existing conditions. So these directives would only be enacted on the government's order. They have a lot of wording about preventing discrimination based on race, gender, age, etc., and one uh, thing that I've never seen before, a little disturbing, is there's a reference to enacting a random selection protocol if two patients are rated as equally eligible for the treatment. So, authorities like the province's chief medical officer say it's important to think of these things in advance and certainly crucial not to leave these terrible decisions to frontline workers in the midst. Of horrible circumstances. What do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And obviously, there are lots of concerns. I'd like to bring in David Lepofsky, who is chair of the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act Alliance, and a visiting professor at the Osgoode Hall Law School, and Kerry Bowman, a bioethicist and assistant professor of family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto. Hello and a welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Good afternoon. Happy to be here. Hi, Libby. Hi. Okay, let us begin with Carrie. And uh, I know that uh, a lot of people uh, find this very worrisome. The opposition sort of touted it as a secret document. Uh, when I read through it, I thought, <clears throat> sorry, uh, sensible to have this.
2: You know, hopefully it's sensible, but there's a lot of concerns with it. And, you know, a lot of work has gone into it. And, and I'm sure we're going to focus very much on whether this 12-month is a reasonable metric uh, that we should be looking at. But, look, I, I hope we don't get there. I'm going to say what a 1,000 people have said. I hope in the weeks ahead we do not need a document like this. I've got grave concerns about it. I, I think it might be at this point getting closer to about the best we can do under the circumstances. And, you know, remembering, I, I'm a person that's actually spent a lot of my working life. I, you know, I'm, I'm an academic bioethicist now. Um, I did clinical work for a lot of years. I actually worked in ICUs for a long time. So I'm not saying I know it all, but I'm certainly used to critical care and how the culture of critical care plays out. I worry greatly about the fact that, you know, what about due process? What about consent? I mean, this really turns everything we normally do on its head um, in terms of, you know, patient-focused care, um, consent for these types of things, the involvement with the patient. Patient might be incapable or their families. And what would due process look like? Is there going to be a due process? Uh, can people appeal? What are, What are people told about this? And, and I won't go any further, but, but Libby, I would say, you know, the thing that worries me, too, about it is we're talking so much about how we need to protect the most vulnerable. To be honest, this protocol actually finds who the most vulnerable are, and those are the ones that are excluded rather than not excluded.
1: Okay. David Lepofsky, what are your concerns about this? Well, it's nice to
3: talk to you, and, Carrie. it's nice to meet you. I share your concerns about due process because, just so your audience knows, we from the disability community have been trying to get the government to come clean on what their plans are for months. And this got leaked to us and we made it public. We're one of those, others did too, but we're the ones who posted it online. This has been shrouded in clouds of secrecy uh, with the government talking to some doctors and bioethicists, but refusing to talk directly to us who are exposed, people with disabilities are disproportionately at risk of getting COVID. They are disproportionately at risk of getting its most serious symptoms. And if you look at long-term care homes, they are disproportionately dying from it. And yet what we find with this document when you cut past all the medical jargon are several ways in which we've shown uh, that it will discriminate against those who are disproportionately exposed to the disease, people with disabilities. And on the issue that that Carrie properly mentioned, which is due process, there's none. And we've asked for it. We've given concrete proposals uh, of what there needs to be. Someone could be deciding on your very life. You get no chance to be heard. You get no appeal. All you get is the bad news if there's a decision that you're going to be refused critical care. And the last thing I want to tell you, like there's lots more for us to go into, but underlying there's something which the government is simply not addressing at all, and we've been raising for a long time. We have this pesky little thing in a democracy called the rule of law. And the rule of law isn't just uh, the principle we've heard that Donald Trump is not above the law. It also provides that the government can't do things or direct that things be done that affect your fundamental rights like your right to live uh, unless they have a legal mandate to do it, unless the legislature has given them a legal mandate and unless that law is constitutional. No one has yet shown to us that the government can, by a memo from unnamed bureaucrats sent to whoever, direct who decides who lives and who dies and how they're going to decide that.
1: Okay. Carrie Bowman, very interesting the things that you brought up, but, but here's a scenario in my head from the pictures that I saw out of Italy and New York last spring. So, uh, you have an emergency facility. It is, uh, out of control, uh, and overrun, and you have one ventilator left, and suddenly three patients come in who need it. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't imagine that in the normal, if, That's not normal, but when that happens, there's not really time for due process. I mean, tell me, you worked in those situations.
2: Yeah, you know, I worked in those situations, but outside of an emergency situation. So in most cases, the patient before you, uh, you you really have to assess uh, whose needs, you know, how how best can we meet those needs. Um, What's really being proposed here is to look at those three patients, and I'm really simplifying something much more complex. And say who's likely to not only survive this critical care process, but who's likely to be alive within a year. Now, you know, crystal balls—they don't work very well. Um, that's a very, very tough question. But they and were.
1: It, let me. Let me just. Yeah. From what I read, it wasn't who, you know, in the universe is likely to live for a year. Who, as a result of the treatment that you're giving right now, is likely. To live a year. So, I mean, it says uh, people who've who've had a a cardiac arrest and you try to bring them back, well, the the numbers on that are are not very good. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not, okay, uh, person X is is, uh, 80 years old and had cancer, so I don't think they're going to live for a year. Mm -hmm. It's... I mean, I, I'm, I'm being well. I, you know, I. I'm no, not it's a, usually it's the a government.
2: complex. It's a complex clinical equation, and you know, it's nowhere near perfect. But you know, you mentioned Italy. I mean, look what Italy did. Uh, mostly, look, they had a crisis on their hands. They looked at people's date of birth. They absolutely discriminated uh, related to age. There's no question about it. We still run the risk of that with with these types of approaches. But, you know, when you look at the threshold and the criteria that they're using, um, they're really using what's called clinical prognostication. And, you know, it is better in the second wave than it was in the first um, in terms of who is likely going to survive this. Look, you know, Libby, we could say this is so profoundly difficult. We can't touch it. it. It's morally, legally, ethically just rife with problems. But if we do that, more people may die. We, you know, if hey, listen,
1: can, can I get? It, can I get just you a minute? Yeah, can, can you really let him, David? Can you please let him finish? Oh sure. Okay. Yeah. So you know, if we do nothing, we may have a
2: situation that's far worse on our hands, where we have nothing going on. And what worries me with the hospitals is if we don't have protocols. um, you know, you, you could have individuals making very value-laden decisions that are highly discriminatory. Well,
1: I mean, and, and I want to make a point here is that, is that, you know, I think there will be biased decisions because of a lot of unconscious bias, but at least, you know, you mentioned Italy making decisions based on a birthday. That's what scares the heck out of me. And at least in this document, it says very clearly, don't do that. But Libby. No, it then, then Okay, to you, can, you, can, you gotta have one person at a time here. David. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. Please,
3: please let me let me get in on this because it's really important to understand this. Uh, under this, the, the question isn't should there be a protocol? They've had 11 months to develop this and have been working on it in secret. the The government tells us to talk to some external bioethics table, which they hide behind. It's like human shields. They won't let us talk to the real decision makers. And when it comes to what this document actually says, and we analyzed it all weekend and yesterday sent the government a 17-page single-space analysis of its problems, it's all wrapped up in medical jargon, so it sounds like what Kerry's talking about, but it actually does, in the end, make doctors a law unto themselves individually, and it does actually direct the use of one particular tool as part of the analysis for some patients, which on its face is blatantly discriminatory against patients with disabilities. Which is which tool? It's called the clinical frailty scale. And what it does, and we've explored this at length, what it does is it tells doctors to assess a patient over 65 with a uh, progressive condition And ask whether they can do eleven activities of daily living: getting out of bed, and uh, making uh, and eating, uh, and shopping, and doing their finances. And it asks doctors to assess whether people can do that without assistance. And we have amply documented that that's like code for, or proxy, I should say, not code, but proxy for disability. The clinical and, and thing to assess. I'm blind to assess what I can do without a white cane. To assess uh, what somebody else can do without assistance they need when they have a disability is also blatantly contrary to the human rights code. So while there is language in there uh, that that talks about human rights and espouses important values, the directions it actually gives fly directly in the face of those. And don't just don't just take it from me as a disability rights advocate and all those who've united with us to say this, the Ontario Human Rights Commission has the exact same concerns. We also, just one more point, have huge concerns with this one-year cutoff. If there's going to be a protocol and if it's going to be measured by time, it should be substantially shorter because the longer it is, and especially when it's out as far as one year, it does ultimately make each doctor a law unto themselves, which I don't think they want to be. And therefore, the risk of what Carrie was saying, which is unconscious bias and doctors doing things based on their own personal
1: okay. priorities. Uh, let me give the numbers out again. I really would like to hear from people about whether this worries you, what you think about it, or uh, does it help? I mean, the the other thing that I'm concerned about is that when doctors have to make these decisions, I would think it's terrible and and will affect their mental health and their ability to continue working under difficult conditions. So numbers to call 416-360-0740 toll-free 1-866-740-4740 and and carry um, the assessment he talked about I that was not anywhere near the top of the document you mentioned that you didn't think a year was necessarily a good Metric. A
2: year is tough. A year is very, very tough for a lot of concerns, the ones that David has expressed. Um, but, you know, it's also a very hard thing to calibrate. My understanding with a clinical frailty scale is it, w- it will only be looked at in terms of clinical frailty in relation to acute illness, not in terms of longstanding. Uh, that is what I have been told. Um But but, Libby, I would also say, you know, one thing that worries me is if we look particularly at the Toronto Teaching Hospitals, the way they've handled the vaccination rollout, they kind of ignored a lot of these protocols anyway as to phase one ethics, and they gave them to all kinds of peripheral stuff. Now, look, that's not every hospital, by the way. But they did. And I fear, even with this, that they may say, well, that's interesting, but, you know, we're in a crisis. And because they, they're the Toronto hospitals were mostly unapologetic about that. They just, yeah, you haven't been in the hospital in eight months, we've got to use them up. And I, I get it that they've got to use them up. But anyway, I don't mean to change topics here. But, but you know, but they that, really That's, have been by the way,
3: why you need that. due process. That's exactly why you and I agree we need due process. and liberty. yeah. If uh, you yeah, were except- worried that there isn't time for due process, we designed proposals which the government won't talk to us about, that are time-sensitive because of the emergency nature of this. So, you can do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay.
1: Yeah, again, uh, we do, um, Carrie, um, but do you, so do you, can you think of a better metric for a directive like that?
2: Look, I, you know, I'm PhD, not MD, so I'm going to say this with some caution. I'd like to see a shorter time frame, but I think that's problematic from a clinical standpoint. Um, David might have opinions on this. David?
3: Well, we say number one, it's got to be legislated or it doesn't matter what we think it should be. Number two, if there's going to be a time period, it's got to be much shorter. Number three, clinical frailty scale or any other dis- discriminatory metric that violates the human rights code should be rejected hmm. unless the government can justify it. And finally, there's got to be proper, prompt, swift, fair due process for patients,
2: which I- I've heard nothing about. Um, also, I must say, I, I've been struggling to get the document for a long time. And I teach bioethics. I still do clinical consults, and I haven't been able to get my hands on it. Go um, to
3: aodaalliance.org/healthcare, and we posted yeah. it yesterday morning.
2: Aoda okay,
3: okay, 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 yes, slash it's, healthcare
1: It's 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 ev- it's everywhere now. Oh no, I know it's content.
2: I know it's content, but actual the physical document, it's tough. Look, I'm I'm going to say this, and. I, this is the reason I'm not at any of these bioethics tables is I don't want to be, I want to stay independent on this because I don't want to get caught up in you know a lot of these systemic factors that that may contribute to these problems.
1: Yeah, and and to be fair to uh, the people on those tables, they they're not bureaucrats. They're they're people no. who practice in these areas. How they come to a consensus, I don't know and can't imagine. And this is obviously a, uh, you know, a note to the audience. It's obviously a very difficult topic because I've had at least. Five people, uh, you know, showing up that want to talk, and then, then they change their minds. So, yeah, uh, no, obvi-
2: it's a very, very tough thing. Uh, yeah. Carrie, no, it's true. Carrie, Those people are independent. They're also not, the once they're part of the committees, they're not in a great position to speak publicly because they're part of it, and that, that can be a problem, too. Yeah, yeah,
3: I just debated the- one of them on Steve Pakin's show, Dr. James Downer, last Wednesday. They it, it didn't hold them back, and we had a lively discussion uh, with two other presenters, I we've spoken to the bioethics table. One, I'll just share two things. One is, we can talk to them, but once they give their advice, we don't know what's going on inside government. They're not the bioethics table, not the deciders, and no. that's why we call them the human shield. And, and, and the other thing is, yeah. one thing that we came to realize is they know medicine, they know bioethics, but they clearly did not know law, and we had to explain the most basic constitutional and human rights principles to them. I'm not faulting them. That's not their field. But you you can't just treat those as kind of a nice little uh, ornament on the side. They are the bedrock that everything must comply with when you're Uh, dealing with the right to live.
1: Carrie, I, I'd like to um, talk about, you know, the the whole issue of the doctors. You've worked in ICUs. Mm-hmm. Isn't it better for doctors to have a document like this rather than them having to make these decisions?
2: No, it absolutely is. And by the way, you know, the, the, the attending doctor ideally would not be part of this. Now, that may sound surprising to people, but the attending doctor's commitment to his or her patients is so substantial that you would have to have a review committee. But boy, would these committees have to be nimble and fast moving. There's no way you could be scheduling things. And an appeal process would also have to be very fast moving and nimble as well. So those are some of the things that I worry about. Uh, Like, what would you actually say to the families when when you're you know, you've got three beds and six people or something like that? I have no idea. This information has not been clear to me in the least.
1: I mean, and well, what if it's like a a, um, a mass that there's, again, somebody else calling and you get their, their point? Uh, I'm seeing it on my screen and then they're gone. Uh, what if it's a, sort of like a mass casualty effect, you know, which is I mean, when I'm thinking of those pictures I saw out of Italy, that's what that's what it looked like to me.
2: No, and that's why we have to be prepared. Because as I said earlier, you know, we can say if I was teaching a class, look, this is so complicated, we can't do any of it. That's not a solution. We And, you know, luckily and hopefully things will be better. We have some nice numbers today. They're probably not accurate. but They're you know, not we, accurate.
1: <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I got all excited and then I saw, I know, well, there was a know, report. We
2: have bro. a province that can't seem to count when well, it comes to these things. It's so difficult. Here's but
3: the frustration. Here's the frustration. People with disabilities are telling us that they are terrified to even go to hospital for fear they might face triage. We're not we don't think doctors want this role. We're not convinced that doctors are even the sole or exclusive people who should have this role, and that's always been a given, but the huge problem is from the moment the government started on this last February. Up until this day, they have been enshrouding this in secrecy and talking to their docs or bioethicists, but not to us people who have our lives at stake. We've been offering advice. You talk about due process. We put together concrete proposals. The Ministry of Health, Ontario Health, never contacted us to discuss it. And we send it to them. We make it all public. Yeah, They're secretive. We are really public.
1: Well, um hopefully uh and uh, we're running out of time in the minute I'm going to uh, give you a uh, a little chance what to leave us with I guess really the bottom line is really hopefully Hopefully, hopefully that we never have to use these. What would you like to leave us with, Carrie, Uh very quickly, please?
2: Yeah, and I, Libby, I hope we don't have to use them as well. My point is, you know, I, I just ask that people not walk away from this thinking. It's so complicated and so dangerous, we shouldn't do it at all. Uh, doing nothing with a potential emergency is not a solution, and it's not fair to critical care, and it's not fair to the people of Canada. Something has to be done. And uh, it's a moving process. The story's not over
1: yet. Okay, and David?
2: I agree with Kerry, and I only add that
3: what's got to be done has got to be legal. It's got to have a legal authorization for it. It's got to be constitutional, and it should be done in the public and debated in public, not in secrecy. You have now held on this phone call more public debate on this issue than the Ford government has had in 11 months.
1: Okay, well, that and so much else. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, thank you both, uh, Carrie Bowman and David Lepofsky. We appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Thanks Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. And that's all the time we have for today.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one.